This is episode 350 of the AWS podcast, released on December 15, 2019. Podcast confirmed. Welcome to the official AWS podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Simon Lesher here with you. Great to have you back. And I'm joined by not one but two in-studio guests. This is a new thing, so what could possibly go wrong? I'm joined by two of our um, finest uh, specialists when it comes to security. I'm joined by Raisa Hashem. G'day, Raisa. Hey, Simon. Thanks for having me. Good to have you on board. And Paul the Hawk Hawkins. G'day, Paul. Hey, how you doing? So let's uh, do some quick intros just to set the scene. So, Raisa, what's your role here at Amazon? So I am a DevOps security specialist with AWS Professional Services. And in my day-to-day, I would help enterprises, um, I guess, uh, enhance their security posture, um, optimize their security posture, do a lot of security automation. Um, and yeah, just as they're migrating sort of their workloads to AWS, basically optimize that process. Fantastic. And Paul, what about yourself? Uh, I'm a security solutions architect, and I help customers with security risk and compliance in the cloud. And a lot of the conversations I've been having recently are around kind of DevSecOps and how do you actually build applications more securely? So that is the topic of today is DevSecOps because we didn't think that DevOps was enough of a buzzword. We want to add sec in the middle. But the good thing is, is with our guest today, we have we have Paul who talks about it and Risa who actually makes it real. <laughs> but you two have worked together for a long time in terms of sharing a lot of the knowledge and techniques and things that work in the field and things that don't work in the field. You've done some really great talks, um, which we'll link to in the show notes, sort of persona-based type talks. But maybe before we even dive deep, let's talk about what what is even DevSecOps? Okay, I'm going to let you start. <laughs> <laughs> I was pointing at you, Paul. I reckon that you. <laughs> okay, well, I'll go and you can kind of fill, fill in, in the gaps. Fill in, where I miss, fill in where I miss. So when I talk about DevSecOps, firstly, the thing we say is you can't go and buy yourself a DevSecOps. It's not a thing that you can kind of say, oh, I, I will install one of these and everything will be fine. And it's kind of like dev it's kind of like devops but realizing that security is a requirement that everybody has that is actually important to all people in an organization not just people who have security in their job title and when we talk about devops it's a case of is the modern technology that's available in the cloud that helps us build applications more quickly something that also helps us build applications better and Better in terms of security is making sure that we're doing it as early as possible. We're catching things like before we even get to production. And then how do we ensure that the thing that we intended to build was the thing that we actually built and we can do that really, really quickly. So we're trying to help people ship securely fundamentally. And the the positioning of the SEC in the DevSecOps is not accidental. If we think about wanting to sort of harmonize more the developer and the, the operational experience into one, having security being pervasive is, is really important. So, Raisa, how do you see it from, from your perspective of, of what customers are doing? I guess I'll just go back a little bit. Um, so, for, for me, DevSecOps is the capability that an organisation have um, to ship securely and to move fast securely. So, you know, it really does span all across the people process culture is a really big one. Um, And then of course, technology is what sort of augments all of that or helps sort of, um, you know, make that come to fruition. Right. But, but I, I guess for me, when I sort of work with customers day in and day out, I see a lot of the, you know, in the people and process side and a lot of the automation actually ends up being in the people and process side. 
and the technology components kind of exist in each of the the teams with each of the um, you know parties involved. But it's kind of the that um, integration point between the teams is where a lot of the automation capability really exists. And so, that's what I kind of work with. So all, almost automating the bureaucracy out of the system in a way. Exactly. So, so before we get into some detail, let's let's look at outcomes. So it's one thing for us to stand here and say, well, you know, you, you get to move faster, you can ship, it's all secure, blah, blah, blah. What Can you give us some examples of, of what customers you've seen have achieved in terms of time to value, speed to market, cycle times? Give, give us a, a feeling of what good looks like. So, so it really does um, sort of... Sp- you know, span customer to customer. And it really does also depend on the maturity of where the customer is at. And that's a key one. Um, for uh, say one of the most recent ones and one of the most recent customers I've been working with has been National Australia Bank. They've kind of been, you know, uh, quite vocal mm. about this. Um, so in a, in a lot of the, the capabilities we've worked with them on has been around uh, really accelerating their SecOps teams to be able to keep up with the development teams. So in that case, you'll see that a lot of the benefits come out in how fast they're able to react when um, sort of vulnerabilities are found or how fast they're able to even detect the vulnerabilities and then also um, how fast they're able to deploy controls across their environments at scale. And that's been one of the key um, takeaways, I think, at least for NAB, because previously uh, there was a lot of sort of teams talking to each other, say security operations will talk to security architecture to get something approved. And then, you know, before they could do deployment, they'll have to talk to the platform team to say, hey, I need access to all these accounts and I need these sort of role changes to happen. Um, But now basically all of the communication has been gone, like has kind of disappeared because we've changed that all um, to put event-driven architectures in them. So essentially as soon as a team is ready, um, that basically generates an event that another team can consume and then they're sort of part of the process starts. So no, there's no talking in between teams anymore. Um, and then what that enables is that basically that works as a trigger for other um, teams to do their deployments and, and that sort of changes sort of continues. Um, and so from time of, you know, 15 to 20 days of doing deployments across controls, across accounts, they're now down to 30 to 45 seconds. Wow. So it's very, very yeah. rapid movement and completely taking away sort of people in those integration points between the teams. And, and is, is DevSecOps really an example of where we, we say, okay, in the cloud, everything is driven by an API and so we can automate the, the, the living daylights out of it if we want to, but you have to kind of culturally accept, celebrate and emphasize that so that you can have these handoffs be automated, which is really the only thing that gets you from 30 days to 30 seconds, isn't it? Hundred percent, hundred percent. Paul, do you want to make any comments on this? Otherwise, I'll just- it, it must be easy. <laughs> um, so, Rayson makes like a really good point that it's um, it's enabling security people to do the things that they still need to do and the things that are important to an organization, but creating a situation where people who are building applications who are focused on building business functionality don't have to wait to um, get a response from a security person, and typically. There are fewer security people in an org than there are developers. I was talking to a CISO and they were saying that there was for every seven security people, there's like a hundred developers or something of that nature. So if you've got like a blocking process and the traditional security architecture flow is very blocking where somebody hands you a Visio diagram, you draw X's where the firewalls go and you hand it back and tell them they've done something wrong (laughs) rather than building capability, which allows application teams to keep moving and make decisions which are appropriate for them because they know how the application works, give them fast feedback, give them event-driven 
um, as Raisa mentions, um, programmatic feedback, so they can make informed decisions without having wait having without having to wait for a human to come back and say, "Oh, you should have done this other thing." And I think that's the important thing. There is we're not we're not actually saying don't check your code, don't check things. We're actually saying be really specific about what you're checking for, and apply it um, without tolerance. Basically, you're just saying it, it, it's either it, it's either going to be there and it gets the tick automatically, or it's not going to be there and it won't get the tick. And it's it's actually easier organizationally and culturally if you tell people up front what you expect. So a big part of this is the security org or the risk org um, saying, here are the things that I expect our organization to do. Here are the things that are important to us. These are the security non-negotiables. These are the things that are contextually appropriate for your particular application. And to support me going, we need to encrypt volumes at rest or we need to have certain network configuration, I'm going to provide a bunch of capability that will check that for you, even before you've built it in some cases, and then that will enable you to move faster. So we're trying to get from security as the department of no to security as the enabling function. And this is really, I think, also from a cultural perspective, getting away from this adversarial approach because I guess if I think back to my my early year experiences as, as a developer, now it's developers don't want to build insecure code or deploy insecure systems. We, we're not happy when that happens, but often they sort of get tarred with, oh, they're those lazy developers or they're cutting corners or what have you. Whereas, you know, if I reflect on how we implement security, we often make it really hard for people to be secure. It's almost like a quiz. <laughs> and so really I think this modality is trying to say, we want to make this golden path. That's the easiest way you can go, but also builds in security. So maybe Raisa, let's start with, you know, how does this journey actually begin with, you know, if, if an organization wakes up one day and says, okay, this sounds like a place we want to get to, but we're not even close. Where do we start? So, so one thing that I kind of just want to highlight what you've just mentioned as the experience of a developer, right? Um, so the first thing is that hundred percent developers don't want to be building, you know, um, code that's not secure. But the other thing is also they're not meant to be the experts in the field of what is secure, right? And that's essentially why security operations and security architecture and security engineers are there. So, so ideally, I think the the um, I you know the ideal scenario for a developer is to be very well informed as to what is secure and what isn't secure. And again, that can be made by automation um, during the development process, during the deployment process, and post deployment. But the other thing also is, um, is essentially you can be build in security into all of the the process of an SDLC so that security is there by default. You don't actually, as a developer, need to know, okay, I need to change, you know, well, maybe you do need to know, but not because you have to um, make that change yourself and be accountable for that change necessarily, but more so that the accountability is still with the security person, but you have been informed and you're acting on, you know, what you've been informed about. So, so it, the accountability is, you know, the, the lines of responsibility and accountability, I think it, the definitions of that can still remain as is with an organization, but it, it's that the, the merge of the, the actions that are taken um, is, I, I guess, you know, with all of them, with every single party involved. So does this tie then into the, I guess, the fundamental need for automation of the development and deployment pipeline and that you, you need that automation in general, but then you need to build in the the security component of that. Yeah. So it's actually, you know, that's from the perspective of a developer, right? Like, so from the the time that you're essentially writing code in your IDE, you're able to get that feedback of, okay, this is what I'm writing, which gives me something that um, is going to have a vulnerability in my code or is not going to have a vulnerability in my code. 
And then you go through the process of build and, you know, you sort of test and, and, and deploy. And, and each of those, there will be ideally some level of check against your infrastructure, against your networking, against your identity access management, against your actual application code that says, hey, these parts you need to, to change, right? These parts you're not compliant, so you won't be able to proceed as you progress in your build and test and deploy, or these parts um, you're good to go with. And so you can actually do your deployment, right? Or we can continue with your build and test and do your deployment. Um, so that's just in the so sort of software development lifecycle. But then so many other things go into it, right? So from the platform side of things, like of course all your networking and VPCs and you know all your underlying infrastructure is in place and they also have to have a layer of security, right? And then of course, from the security side, all of the controls that you will have in place, say if you're using config and config rules for detection, or if you know, um, you've got essentially wife in place. So like all the other sort of security elements that say a security team would be sort of responsible for and, and respons responsible for maintaining, all of those will also have to be secure and be in place for that software development lifecycle to be, you know, proceeding without any um, so as smoothly as possible, yeah, right. Yeah. And as securely as possible. So all of those elements kind of, and automation in all of those elements need to come together to be able to move securely, you know, at speed and, and deliver and at speed. Yeah. I think uh, another part of that automation that's interesting that's, that maybe is, is forgotten as a primary benefit is the auditability and accountability of all those components. And, um, I, I know one of our customers recently was, was, uh, talking about some of the work they did where they actually have a, an external third party who does vulnerability testing of the applications as they flow through the system. And what they do is actually have a specific point in their pipeline where the testing is done and encrypt, uh, cryptographically signed as well. No, it doesn't use blockchain. Um, Paul was looking at me. Um, uh, but they, they cryptographically sign the test so that as, as one of the artifacts, that is proof that we, we tested it. So maybe, Paul, cover, cover some of that stuff. And that's, a, that's an approach that you can apply to other things, not just kind of third-party verification. Um, Rasa talked about pipelines a lot and have, having the mechanisms in place that you have a developer writing some code. It could be application code. It could be infrastructure code. They're going to deploy that into an environment. And we can probably move on to talk about kind of environments and the fact that your AWS landing zone multi-account strategy is a product that has kind of feature requests and an owner. But um, developer commits some code. And that code goes through an amount of tests. And if the tests pass because we've built security testing as part of functional testing as early as possible, you've then got an artifact that is in a known state. If you sign that, you can have a check later on that says, are we deploying something that has definitely been tested? And we can use cryptographic mechanisms to say, yes, this has been signed and we can validate that signature. So it's a really good way of going, yes, this code has been through security assurance testing by our third party. They validated it, they've signed it, they sent it back. And we have a mechanism of going, yeah, that's good. We'll go to the next stage. And do you think auditors are going to start to expect that as the, the in kind of the, the new normal? I mean, if, if I reflect on the the fact the the somewhat unusual fact that what some of the biggest fans of of cloud in the early days were actually the security specialists, because like you mean I can call an API, I know what I'm running. This sounds like heaven. Yeah. Do you do you think that now the the auditing community is starting to say, well, you know what, if we can get a real time view, we can actually give a day by day accounting rather than a every six months check. Um. Definitely. I think for a couple of reasons. One, audit traditionally is somebody wandering around with a clipboard or a spreadsheet and saying, have you done a thing? That takes a long time, happens, let's optimistically say twice a year, but doesn't happen super frequently. And it happens definitely 
less frequently than the rate of change of people building applications, re releasing multiple times a day in some cases. If the audit community, and it's kind of tightly linked to the kind of risk and compliance folks as well, can get a, a view of the posture of an environment now, and they can see the trend of oh, this particular application team is improving, so they're having fewer um, security defects that have to be go back and get fixed. It makes it easier for them to say the point in time is today, tomorrow, the next day, and getting iteratively kind of better visibility each day rather than going, well, I checked it six months ago. It's probably okay. Yeah, it's, 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 it's definitely a change. Rose, are you seeing that on, on the ground with some of these bigger customers? Definitely. I think the the trend and, and as we start to um, sort of automate in the security and security operations and security engineering space and as we start to sort of accelerate them so that they can sort of, you know, give that sort of um, – faster speed to the developers or essentially sort of stay on track to, to the development life cycle. Um, what we're seeing is that actually the auditing behavior is actually moving to an on-demand audit model so that any time that you want to, you can almost at real time get an idea of this is essentially where, um, you know, the, the software um, deployment or, or, or software is in the development life cycle. And then this is any level of, I guess, nirvana also is this is where sort of your risk posture is at any point, right, in that sort of development life cycle. But, you know, say with a lot of the sort of event-driven architectures, um, you're able to uh, detect um, and also remediate yeah. sort of as you go and give visibility to that. This is what I've been able to find. And this is what I've remediated. And then on top of that, I guess, config and config rules, and I kind of keep talking about this a lot, but it's it's – it's your mechanism post-deployment to be able to detect where um, your con the configurations of your infrastructure is at any point in time, right? Mm. And, and, on, on, and in some cases, um, your application as well. So then you're able to really, at, at any time, you're able to get that visibility and that auditability, which is essentially, no, that, that's, the, that's the outcome. That's the ideal yeah. outcome. And I think that's interesting, that ability to to set those broad running rails, because I guess the, the 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 piece we've trying to be put together for a long time for the developer and security professional experience is to say the security specialist can set the running rails to say, here's, here's where the boundaries are. Here's where those hard edges of what you should, you know, you mentioned before encryption at rest or, you know, don't have this port open or, you know, just the, the general stuff, the, the, the knowledge base, if you like. The config is a service that lets you make that real from a, it's constantly checking what's going on, making sure it's right, but also remediating as well, which means that uh, it's not just for current policies, but also let's face it in security, the, the, the latest O day is just a, a day away. Yeah. Um, you know, there's always something new and the ability to look at your environment holistically and say, well, now we need to, you know, for example, you know, with not patching, now we need to close this particular port or, or turn off this particular service and guarantee that it's not on anywhere in the environment. The ability to deploy that, as a policy and then be able to show back and say, yep, it's definitely off. It's pretty revolutionary. Yeah. And you can do a bunch of things that are kind of more contextual as well. Um, Rosa talked about config rules and that's a really good way of going. Here is some principles that I, from a security architect want to ensure exist in all of the accounts and all of the applications that I'm dealing with. You can codify those, those principles and you don't have to go around to 27 application teams and go, are you doing this thing? You can write that. You can work with the platform team to say, for all accounts um, in our environment, we should have these checks in. And then those checks, when they run, can provide that feedback directly to the developers. And then you can do other kind of more broad things with the kind of guardrails you talk about to say, in particular environments or in an OU, in an AWS organization, 
here are the here is the configuration that I need to prescribe. And you can use things like service control policies to say people can't connect an ENI to the internet in a VPC that doesn't already have internet access, or people can't change the policies that are attached to their own role, or people are able to create IAM roles and attach them to Lambda functions, but they must attach a permission boundary. And that's a really good example of security being an enabling function for developers because we did a um, talk together at, um, at Reinforce and the, the start of the talk was Racer talking about the developer experience, which was, oh, and now I have to go and talk to security to ask them to give me something. Mm-hmm. And then we got to the, the happy place, which was I can, I'm empowered to build applications because I'm an experienced application developer and I know what the application needs and security have given me the capability. And if we need more, we're working together rather than opposition and we can go and add more capability into the things that are consumed by everyone. So one thing just to add to that is, you know, that capability with security and developers working together is possible when basically security and developers are sort of on the same page and talking the same language. Mm, And the intersecting point in that is code, right? So the security teams, the the key is to get security teams to start working more in a test-driven and behaviour-driven development environment. So the actual requirements that you have for security, you're writing as what the behavior is that you want, that you expect in your security controls. And then guess what? Anyone who is, you know, comfortable with coding would be able to then code those as say config rules or other sort of control mechanisms and and deploy those in the environments. And security can actually, you know, of course, if you're sort of committing everything to repo, you just essentially raise a pull request and security able to review and say, cool, I'm great. I'm happy with that. And all of a sudden you've just um, scaled your security functionality because you've been able to give the requirements of what you want to someone else to develop. And obviously, like you said before, you know, six or seven SecOps people to Mm. 100 developers. Can't scale. That's right. Like you can't scale, but this is your scaling mechanism. Give them a language that someone else can understand and they can then take that on board and, and basically iterate on it. And then developers are also understanding the security language. They understand why the certain things are required. And then on top of that, they're feeling empowered. They're actually in the process. They understand the security um, elements of what goes into an application. They're not just that. Some of them are actually even building it. Some of them are, you know, secure. They have already now that relationship with security. So there's a whole cultural change that has just happened, but right. They come into that common, common ground of talking in in behavior and, and code. And, and there's definitely a sort of the, the whole is greater than some of the part situation because I think it's interesting you, you talk about the security people having to be, have a more developer mindset or at least understand some of the capabilities. When you were talking about that, something that jumped into my mind was um, was Travelex and what they do with their container-based architecture. I mean, they built a, a container-based architecture. There's a whole lot of really good DevSecOps features, but if I pick on one that I thought was really interesting is they made a design decision to say, well, we're using containers, which means they can be easily disposed and created again with very low overhead. So every 24 hours, we're just going to delete all our containers and rebuild them from our known good source control, um, which is a really interesting different security posture, which is which is being realistic and saying, we can't know all the vulnerabilities that, be, that might be out there. We could be compromised for a period of time that we just don't know. However, by destroying everything every 24 hours, we are eliminating our vulnerability window to the shortest possible time, which is is not something a, a tr- quote-unquote traditional security person would even think you would do. Um, so it's a really different mindset to, it, to cover it. And it's one of those things. I just want to touch on something that um, Racer said about um, security folk needing to kind of get that developer mindset and communicate as code. It also really helps with um, clarifying your thinking as a security person. If the output of your security architecture or your kind of um, review process or your kind of security policies 
is something that has to be codified. It means that you have to have clarity of thought and you have to be very specific in saying, these are the things that I want to test for, because that is essentially the pseudocode that can be written in whatever language is appropriate at the time. But it, it gets you away from that kind of fluffy, do good security stuff because reasons mm, and get mm. more to, towards, we specifically have an articulated risk and then you, you, know, you get better at you know, risk modeling and everything is fundamentally a likelihood consequence kind of matrix, but you, you're being prescriptive and being prescriptive and consistent is incredibly beneficial. This also ties into the, the concept of provable security and the work that the automated reasoning group, and there's a special series that appears on this podcast channel just on that topic. But it is a great example of saying, well, let's apply maths yeah. to, to this to, to be able to pr- pr- say conclusively, are we safe, are we not safe? Yeah. Exactly. And, um, and back on the kind of containers thing, and that's an approach that a few customers have taken where um, they evolve their architectures to um, run on kind of ephemeral compute. And what you're trying to do is get the, the, the situation where you're keeping humans away from data. Um, Steve Schmidt, our CISO, kind of says that quite publicly in a number of different talks. But the, the, the Travelix example where you're building an environment from a known good um, testable source and you're minimizing the amount of time that's um, deployed because you're um, refactoring and you've got a, a rigorous process where you're like, pushing stuff through a pipeline, you're regularly updating your, your base containers, um, possibly using something like the ECR um, scan on commit functionality that's come mm. out recently, which mm. is super helpful that's for developers. Helpful. Yeah. Um, but it allows us as security people, which is everybody in this room, because ultimately security is everyone's job, yep. um, to focus on the things that are important and the things that we couldn't do traditionally, because it was really hard to like rebuild an entire environment because you had to get people with vans and spanners and pull things out of racks. Now we can push things through environments and go, I've, I'm patching this super frequently and I'm pushing it out into my environment. And you build a mechanism that people don't even know, need to know that that's the thing that happens. They mm. just push code and you do a green blue deployment. It's zero impact to your customers, which is the important yep. kind of yep. customers don't really care your, about your underlying architecture. They care about you protecting their data and getting a good service. And what we're trying to do here is help deliver a, a great experience to customers and take care of customer data, which is important to all of us. So let's then talk about the journey. Let's, you know, if we had to give someone a sort of a, a map or a, a, a potted guide uh, yeah. to, you know, where do you start? How do you go? Help. <laughs> uh, you speak to Rayser and she's also out for you. Excellent. There you go. Sorted. Because <laughs> Rayser is infinitely scalable. <laughs> if you don't have access to a highly skilled professional like Rayser, um, there are other things you can do. I'll let you start. <laughs> um, I think the first uh, thing to to really note here is we've spoken a lot about people, we've spoken a lot about culture, and these things take time, right? I think most of us who've kind of, you know, been in the game for, for some time will know that every sort of transformation, any change, you know, takes time. So kind of, yeah, buckle up. Like <laughs> just know that. You're telling me that IT is made of people? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> what you trying Unfortunately to say? so. <laughs> um, yeah, so just just be aware that it will take years. So be, be in it for, you know, for, for years. It's a transformation journey. And then I think the first place then is to, to really take a lay of the land. Okay, so where are we really? Are we ready, right, to do an assessment? Um, so, so then you will start to really start to look from, um, you know, sort of top all the way down. So in terms of your account structure, you've mentioned account structures before, Paul, so that's a, that's a crucial one. So obviously your account structure has to be in a way that you're, you're able to um, 
sort of scale when need be, right? So scalability is a big one. And then of course, isolation of sort of security components is another one. So if you're as a security team, you kind of want to have, you know, your sort of security tooling, your security APIs, um, uh, your you know security code isolated in a, in a separate account, right? And then of course, you'll have non-production production versions of that. So, so first is, yeah, have a look at your account structure. Second is have a look at your org structure, right? So organizationally, mm. are you so are you working in silos or are you actually working in a way that allows for that sort of merging of roles to happen? Because really like a, a, a DevSecOps team is um, one that is very sort of multifaceted, right? So you'll have developers, you'll have DevOps people, you have security people, you'll have security architects. You know, it's a basically a cross-functional team that has to work together to be able to make something happen. And so they need to sit near each other, don't they? They need to sit there, <laughs> they need to talk to each other, and you're able to go over and tap on the shoulders and yeah. And so you know, a level of like really intense collaboration. Um and so if you're organizationally you're if if that the landscape isn't there, then you've got to put in a plan to to basically get that transformation happening over time. Does, does that mean that the the conversation needs to start at the senior level? So is that is that a CIO conversation or a, a sort of a, a set direction for it to be successful? I mean, you can have you can have the groundswell, but do you need the sponsorship? Definitely, hundred percent. I would say, yeah, stakeholder. You know, sort of, yeah, executive sponsorship is is critical for something like this to actually, yeah, any transformation journey to happen. And who's the typical executive that you see being the change agent? Um, I think there's a variety. I think you, everything Rosa said was ex- exactly correct. You need to kind of you need to lean into it. Um, it's an iterative journey. It, this is not a we do one project and yeah. then we've got the DevSecOps. One and done. <laughs> and <laughs> everything's fine and we'll you. never look at this again. Um, but you, the, the thing is that you can, you can solve it in smaller steps. You can pick certain workloads. You can kind of demonstrate what good looks like. And I think you need to approach it from both the top and the bottom. You need the people who are doing the hands-on keyboards work to work together. So talk to the devs if you're a security person. If you're a developer, talk to your security people you will realize that fundamentally you are all trying to solve the same problem, which is shipping securely. You've just got a slightly different perspective and both both sets of people can learn from each other, but also you need senior stakeholder support. So from the security org, the CISO needs to say, yes, we're going to still um, support the, the risk appetite of our organization. We're still maintaining a high bar for security and we can actually raise the bar for security but we have to be comfortable with the way that we deliver that changing. And sometimes it can be a bit scary as a security person feeling like you're handing off control to someone, even though you're not really doing that. And then also how you um, have non-security leadership is super important. So in our organization in AWS, we have a very strong culture of security across everybody who works there. It's job zero. That is partially because our non-security leaders say it's an important thing. Yeah. And all that, the time. And that's, and because it's not coming just from the security org, it's, this is important to all of us as a business. So your CIO, CTO, um, they're both business and technology leaders saying, I want our organization to go fast, but security is an important component of that. And we have to work out what are the things that we need to build across people, process and technology to help us deliver security at speed. So does that mean you're also seeing the COO function being the, a champion there? Yeah, definitely. I think so. It, it really, you know, even at the executive level, it, it's a, it's a matter of coming together, right? Mm. Because again, at the end of the day, the the goal is is the same. You're wanting to be, 
you're wanting to be moving as fast as possible. So delivering customer value at speed securely. Yep. And that can't just happen or sit with, you know, the CIO or the C- CTO or the, you know, CISO. It actually is a unification function even at that, yeah, even at that executive level. Which I guess is where the complexity comes from. The C-suite is actually the the kind of ultimate highest, higher level of that cross-functional team that Rosa talked about. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That's right. So, so let's maybe dive into skills um, and, and let's tackle it from two perspectives. Obviously, the, the you know, developers being more aware of security and what good looks like from a co-development perspective, but let's maybe start with the security specialist who maybe, as you said, has been very comfortable with taking a Visio diagram and analysing it deeply and applying the changes that need to take place. If I'm that sort of security person, how do I iterate my skills? How do I evolve for this new world? Um, so I think one good thing about security people, um, particularly. There are security- many good things about security people. <laughs> <laughs> that, is a, uh, that is a very good point. <laughs> one of the many good things about security people is that um, typically, particularly in an enterprise, but across all, all sizes of customer, they face into a rapidly changing technology landscape. So when I was a security architect in previous roles, you'd get, applications written in different languages, you get different application patterns, and somebody would rock up and go, I need a security architecture review of this thing. And you'd have to learn the thing or at least understand the thing enough to make an informed decision. So most security folk are already in a position to learn stuff. And what the, the context is, is now not so much I need to understand at a high level, they need to be prepared to dive a bit deeper. So in an AWS context, doing some AWS education, um, there's a bunch of self-service stuff, maybe some of the kind of the, the pay training that's available, um, possibly working up to the security certification exam is really good because um, it helps you understand the approaches to security on the platform. And also kind of start looking at like, how would codified security um, exist in an environment that you own. Start getting hands-on. Python is a really good way to start. It's a um, a language that you can write Lambda functions in, it can support config. Um, it's a way of um, being able to do testable security. So getting your hands on and finding out you know, what would it look like to be able to do tests for the things that I care about. Um, and I think that helps have better conversations with developers because you've got a common language. Um, so kind of learning and education is super important about the technology and the capability of the platform. And I think what's what's interesting is is the learning paths that are available. And this is something... I'm constantly reminding IT professionals that we live in a self-service world where all that stuff is out there. And in in the past, you know, we've all grown up in, um, if you've grown up in an enterprise environment, you know, well, you only get access to this machine if you buy it. So here's a few million dollars so you don't get to actually play with it. Whereas in AWS, you can spin up your own account, you can spin up a free account and just start doing stuff. And there's actually a um, a really great um, learning path towards that certified security specialty certification, which I got two weeks ago. So Excellent. Well pretty happy. Yeah, which I'm pretty happy about that. But, but that involves uh, some online training, um, which is uh, AWS security fundamentals. Then there's an architecting on AWS course you can do, the security engineering on AWS. There's an exam readiness uh, process as well. So you can kind of learn as much as you want. And also you can apply the knowledge, again, in your own environment. So one of the, the cool things I see – uh, people who are adopting this uh, automated security view is, th- is they'll build up an account, turn on guard duty, see what they can trip on, attack it, do all sorts of cool stuff. It's it's amazing what you can what you can do. Yeah, I, I would definitely like to make a case for um, AWS Sec Workshops is um, a site that's externally facing, 
you can go and um, self-service and work through the various labs, links to a GitHub repo of um, blobs of security configuration. And that's a good way of going through different kind of quest type things and like getting hands-on with guard duty, um, exploring permission boundaries, doing infrastructure protection, um, investigating AWS WAF and those kind of things. And it's kind of guided um, best practice um, that you can do in your own time. And that's a great way to learn. So, Ray, so what would be the one, the one tip you would give? I mean, you've, you've, you've seen a lot, you've done a lot. I know it's hard to distill into one, one thing, but I'm going to put you on the spot. What's, what's that thing that you'd, you'd, you'd tell people? You know, the, the first thing that comes to mind is I think the mindset, because if the mindset doesn't change, really doesn't matter how many toolings you bring in, how many organizational changes you make, right? Like it's literally like if you really distill everything down, I would say like DevSecOps is a capability which stems from a mindset and the mindset that you have to have is one that is fluid, one that is really um, keen on working in, in a cross collaborative environment and really keeping the, the goal and the customer goal in mind. So really there, like, I guess, you know, in, in, in Amazon, we are very customer obsessed and, and this, every single team, has a customer, right? So the, the development team is, is aiming to, to deliver you know, value as fast as they can to the end users. The, the customer for a security team are essentially the developers because by enabling the developers, they're able to enable the business to deliver securely, right? So everyone has a customer. And, and I think the mindset change is, is really how to make security a key enabler to the business. And I think that as soon as you start to sort of shift in that, 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 um, um, that frame, then all of a sudden you would automatically just want to work, you know, yeah, collaboratively, yeah. you would automatically want to find common grounds of talking and automatically find common grounds of tooling, right? Like, so all of everything else kind of just flows. If as an organization from top down, you make that mindset shift. Kind of decide to make the change. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Exactly everything Rosa just said. <laughs> that's, Come on, man. That's the, that's <laughs> the secret. <laughs> um, like you captured that really well. That's and that applies to security folk, developers. It's the mindset and what you do. Excellent. I don't have anything to add to that. So we'll we'll uh, we'll link in the show notes to some of the the tips we've spoken about and the presentations as well. So. Uh, Lot, lots more there, but hopefully this has been useful. Raisa, thanks so much for joining us today. No problem. And and just, yeah, I guess, I don't know, is there a way to reach out? Reach out to us anytime because obviously we'd, we'd love to to hear, you know, if you have made that sort of shift in, mm. in, in mind frame, you know, even like reaching out to where to go next or reaching out about, okay, this is now the journey that we are on. What, what do we do from here? So obviously we have, you know, heaps of partners who are able to assist. We've got professional services, but we will also start to make heaps of stuff um, open source as well. So you'd just be able to, you know, grab sort of pattern references, architectural references, cultural um, yeah. sort of, you know, yeah, cultural artifacts that you'd be able to use to, to help you along that journey. And I think a lot of us, as we kind of worked with customers more, we're trying to actually work out, okay, well, this is what the, you know, the typical journey looks like. I think, we, you know, we've got a good idea, but I, we're just trying to distill that a bit more as well. So we'll be able to sort of, you know, share that with everyone as well. So you kind of can get a better idea of, okay, this is where I am in my journey. This is my maturity curve. So this is what's kind of expected you yeah, know, in, in, yeah. in my transformation. Yeah. For sure. And AWS podcast at amazon.com is the place to, uh, to send that feedback. Paul, thank you for joining us again. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been great. Um, I'd love to hear what people are building, what people are doing, um, get in touch with the podcast, 
Tell us about the great things that you've been doing. Tell us what worked in your organizations because every organization is different. Everyone has kind of broadly the same challenges, but you're going to solve it specifically for your organization. Um, reach out to your community, attend a meetup, start a meetup if there's not one in your area. Um, share with other folks about what good looks like. And what we can do is we can broadly raise the bar for security across all of our industries, which makes all of us better. It does indeed. Woo. Thanks. <laughs> Testify. <laughs> and we do love to get your feedback. AWS podcast at amazon.com is the place to send that. And until next time, keep on building.